Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Executive, where we interview some of the best operators, investors, and entrepreneurs on how to make it at the highest level. Today, I'm so excited about our guest, who was the founder and CEO of the Honor Foundation to help Navy SEALs and special operators from our military transition from the military into the private sector and be successful in that sector and is now onto his next venture as the managing director and founder as well of Broom Ventures, where they are backing the most mission-driven founders that we can find. Joe, so great to have you. It's great to be here, Matt. Thank you for hosting me. I'm very grateful and appreciative. Absolutely. So Joe, we'd love to talk a little bit about your background. It's, it's obviously, you get this a lot, I'm sure, a non-traditional VC background. How did, what first led to the Honor Foundation where you really had a heart for helping our military personnel transition into you know the, the private sector and then how did that get to get into venture capital yeah sure uh so it's a it's a great question and it's a it's valid um the founding story of thf is special um it really is i have hundreds of co-founders so i can take uh, little i can take little to no credit for something like that getting off the ground other than being Kind of a steward of the of the mission uh, and the word of of what this organization needed to become, um, but the founding story is rooted in something uh, much deeper than you would think of just like a a business. It's really had very little to do with um, a business. It had everything to do with posterity. Uh, so I was the 16th man in my family to serve in the military, uh, going all the way back to World War One, and I grew up seeing every uniform of every branch of every service and every closet of every home for every holiday. Uh, it was never a matter of if it was a matter of when I would actually join. And so when I did, um, <coughs> pardon me, uh, when I did join, um, it was beyond special. It meant something much more to me. It was living up to family. It was living up to expectations. It was me wanting a challenge, uh, that, that can't be reproduced anywhere else in the world. So that's one thing about, you know, Navy SEAL training is, um, although I can only speak to a small amount of it, it's funny how you can learn, you can take so much from the amount that I did experience, uh, and you can't duplicate that anywhere. It's part of, it's part of the attraction, it's part of the lure of going to SEAL training is that you can't get this confluence of stress, events, people, places, things, energy, competition, in one place, anywhere, uh, all happening to you at one time. Yeah. So I was really drawn to that. And outside of the service, you know, it's, I get into this argument often about like why people join the SEAL teams. And uh, I will stick to my argument till I die that they really did join because they had a spirit of service. How they wanted to fill that spirit of service is through their service of being a SEAL. Um, and I had a pretty big spirit of service. I had, came from a family of patriots and also it wasn't just the men who were serving. My, I come from a family of servants. My, uh, from public school teachers to social workers to nurses, um, they weren't just spouses of veterans. These people have an unbelievable mentality about giving back and giving up um, and all around. So um, that was the reason for me to join the Navy in the first place. Um, the SEAL community is just a sub-community, sub-community, sub-community of the Navy. Um, but really the service itself is what I was drawn to and then the type of service I had hoped for uh, with every intention of becoming a Navy SEAL. And then walk us through, you know, you, what got you into the Honor Foundation then? Or, fa or founding it really? Sure. 
um, failure. So most wouldn't call it failure, but it, it was. You have a goal, you don't achieve the goal. Um, and to me, it was a failure. So I experienced a, a spine injury about two and a half years into my service and I was out. So there was no, despite training for years to get in, um, two and a half years in, I was out uh, undoubtedly. <clears throat> so um, on my way out, as I was doing rehabilitation for about eight months, I recognized that there was a serious need that when I would ask the, you know, the community members who were in transition, you know, hey, uh, what's next? Uh, and that's a question that everyone listening right now, if you were to close your eyes and go back to a moment in your life where you were faced with that question, whether it was personally, professionally, in a relationship, in a job, it's the two word question that can give the most fearless people on the planet great pause. What's next? Right. And that for the community, you know, most people spend their whole life looking for their dream job. This community had their dream job and now we're asking them to find another. It's very different. That's a very different thing. Uh, and I wanted to, uh, I was the perfect kind of cocktail and mixture of vulnerability, insecurity, um, mixed with enough stick-to-itiveness and um, grit and kind of like, I have to prove my value and meaning to this community still, despite me not being able to be a, uh, an operator or a trigger puller, I can provide value in other ways. And, and so I was the perfect mixture for that idea to find me at the time, uh, because I, it's not, it's not, I didn't do anything that was exceptional. I didn't do anything uh, that hadn't been tried before. So this isn't like a new idea, let's help veterans transition. Um, yeah. But there hadn't been anything to date that was at the level and um, uh, experience level and caliber and quality uh, for this community, which is obviously high caliber, high uh, quality. You know, the top 0.01% warfighter on the planet is right down the street in San Diego and Coronado, uh, and then also in Virginia Beach. and then. So we needed to go where they are. Uh, and that resulted in five campuses over the next five to six years. That resulted in tens of millions of dollars raised. Um, it resulted in a full staff of 20, a 10,000 square foot award winning campus here in Sorrento Valley, California. Uh, and now when the community asks themselves that question, what's next? Um, they know it's the Honor Foundation. Uh, and so we're super proud of that. And, and that if we can continue to I mean, as a society, this is why I wanted to go into venture. Uh, people are asking these really difficult questions all the time. There must be a better way. What's next? Why, why this? Why this? Why me? Why now? Like all these questions yeah. that are so simple, yet extraordinarily difficult to answer um, and take a lot of resources to make happen. Uh, I wanted to do that. And so the transition from nonprofit to for-profit is the wrong way. I think for people to think about my own work transition, mm. the work is the same. So it's almost like, you know, look, I'm not going political here, but I'm, I'm going to tell you a very similar idea that, you know, a way that I've been able to navigate some difficult political conversations in the last couple of years is pretty simple. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, right? The greatest social worker, first woman that our nation has ever seen. Um, has a great quote. And she says, 
Uh, brilliant people talk about ideas, smart people talk about events, and small people talk about people. Mm. And when I think about that, and also not just navigating political conversations where let's not use names, let's not talk about events, let's talk about the ideas here that we are having. And, and so the idea of the work is what I try to get people to focus on, not titles, not sectors, not you know this industry or that industry. Here's what I was doing at the Honor Foundation. I was standing in front of a classroom of 40 Navy SEALs every Tuesday, Thursday. And I was using all my effort, all my enthusiasm, all my energy. My network was not mine, it was theirs. It was all about others. It was constantly about them and what they needed. Um, well, let's talk about that idea. Well, I now sit in front of what will be soon a 40 company founder, excuse me, sitting in front of a portfolio of 40 founders and all my effort, all my energy, all my enthusiasm, my network is not mine, it's theirs. All yeah. that I am is I wanna just die all used up, man. I wanna die with nothing left behind. Uh, I, I, none of this information, none of this knowledge is mine. It was meant for others. It was meant to give it away. Um, so for me, the, the work, the idea of the work that I was doing, it's, a, it's exactly the same thing. And most importantly, what, it, it fulfills me the same way as well. So the work is the same. What was the idea that led to Broom Ventures? I mean, you were working with Navy SEALs, top performers. How did you even know about venture capital? Or right? Where's the connection? Well, when, and that's, that's a really good question, um, uh, Matt. That's a, that is the question. Well, one, I had to go through my own program. So um, I, I don't wish that I would have made it easier, but it's certainly harder to do and follow your own advice. So um, when I had to get the book and do it myself, uh, step one, and this is what most people, this is what I hope all of you will ask yourselves when you're going through a life transition, is you, sh you, you'll, you will quickly feel overwhelmed if you start to ask yourself the question that I mentioned before, what's next? It's very overwhelming, like, because you're talking about what? You're talking about features, right? You're talking about a billion, literally a billion different things yeah. of what you could do, right? Uh, when you pin it to a who, meaning you should ask yourself in a state of transition, who? is doing something that inspires you. Who's are traceable? Who's you can research? And for me, when I asked myself that question in transition, who is doing something that inspires me, when I really broke down my network at the time, um, it came down to two buckets of people. It came down to entrepreneurs and it came down to VCs. I didn't recognize it right away. I had to um, dig deep into my own network and figure out who is truly someone that inspired me. And I took it like to a totally different level where I broke down, I defined what inspire means. I defined what it meant for them to inspire me. What was I inspired about? Um, it's kind of like my two-year-old, uh, now almost two and a half year old son trying to get him into a habit of apologizing. Well, we can't just say, I'm sorry, because he's just repeating what I'm saying, but I have to get him to understand what he's sorry for. So it's never just, I'm sorry. It's like, okay, well, what are you sorry about? Right? I threw something. That's right. So say you're sorry to, to mommy. Stop chucking, you know, lightning McQueen at my wife, you know, your mom. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, but you know, for me, it, 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 that to me is exactly what I, the first exercise that I did, I looked at what they were doing. I looked at who was, who was doing it. I looked at what they were doing and I got on a phone with all of them. I talked to 50 founders and I talked to 50 VCs over a period of around a year. And if you pay attention to the timeline here, it's quite important. Um, I went from February, January, February of 2020 to January, February of 2021. Uh, and then I was told to stay in my room and don't leave for about a year. And you, it's amazing what you can read. I clearly had an addiction problem with, um, <laughs> with reading. Uh, and I just became like a 200 sponge. books right behind you. Yeah, there's quite there's quite a bit. Um, and, and so the the idea was taking as much as you can from these people. I'm very much a real life MBA person. Like I, I'm not knocking MBAs or the value of MBAs, but man, you put me in a room with a hundred people for a year who have done extraordinary things, who are valued at, you know, 80 plus billion dollars personally for the decisions and for the investments that they've made on just the VC side. Yeah. And then I came across this discovery, right? Which is, it, it, I couldn't shake it. It was the itch. It was, the, a vision, mission, and, and value set for a fund, idea, and concept, and thesis that I could not shake, uh, and that's the idea of teams, leadership, and culture, TLC. Well, how did you figure that out, though? Or was that where you were trying to figure out from all the interviews, or you really didn't know what you were trying to figure out from the interviews? Oh, I had no idea what I was looking for. Yeah, um, you just wanted to talk to the smartest people that you knew, that you respected. Who were doing and, things that inspired me, right? <clears throat> and if, if folks listening... Uh, I call it a listening tour. If you haven't gone on a listening tour, and you may not call it that, you may just call it, you know, cold interviews, you may call it something that means something to you. But for me, a listening tour is very explicit. Um, I've never heard of anyone getting themselves into any trouble because they were listening so hard. So let's just start there, right? Listening tours imply that you are there to listen. And I, I even defined what it means. I define what my activities are and actions are when I'm in the interaction. And it's very 90, 10. Um, and if you want to know what a 90, 10 conversation feels like, if you have any dictation apps, or, uh, you can even do this casually with like a Google doc. Um, if you were to, to track your conversation and realize how hard it is to let someone else speak for 90% of the time and you speak for 10, it's very hard and it takes practice. That and you walk, you have to, and you walk that? away from that conversation thinking it wasn't a good conversation. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, I, I, most people may walk away with that feeling. If you do it right, the person who spoke 90 feels amazing. Yeah. And that means that you asked the right questions for the 10% of the conversation that got them thinking and feeling. Yeah. Right. That's a 90, 10 conversation. And you are whole body listening, like active listening. Um, and that's how those hundred interviews went. And, and what I learned along the way is that all the founders were saying a version of the same story about both their successes and their failures. For example, um, you know, tell me about all the successes that you've had, pick a milestone, right? And walk me through it the people that were around you, the things that were being said, like I try to get very sentient with my questions because it gets people to open up very quickly. And they would always go to a version of this story 
I mean, the teams at the time, they were remarkable. Um, we had great leadership at the board level, or we had great leadership inside of my co-founders, and we just had good leadership concepts at this company. And the culture was trending up and to the right as a result, right? Teams, yeah. leadership, culture. When I asked about failure, well, you know, we hired some bad teammates. We had some bad teams. Uh, we had poor leaders at the time, and our culture as a result started to become toxic uh, and trending down and to the right. Teams, leadership, culture. So my last question towards the end of the interview uh, interviews with both subsets of both founders and uh, VCs was pretty simple. Have you ever heard of a venture fund that uses teams, leadership, and culture, or otherwise known as TLC, as their investment thesis of the fund? It's all they focus on. And the unanimous answer was no. So for me, uh, I wanted to go and quantify what I knew to be true, what we all know to be true, because I don't care what company you're thinking of right now. It, it was once a startup. I don't care if you're Chase. I don't care if you're Home Depot. I, I don't care if you're a Fortune 50. Every company in the world at one point in time was a startup. So why not try to instill the idea of TLC at the earliest stages possible? into founders who already kind of think, act, feel, and communicate in this way, and then sharpen them over time by double downing on, are you paying enough attention to teams? Are you sharpening your own leadership skill sets? Are you paying attention to culture? Because as we know, culture is that funny thing that if you pay attention to it, or you don't, it's being created, and you can't deny it. So that's yeah. the birth of Broom Ventures. Well, similar to entrepreneur, you had to sell that belief, right? You had to sell that thesis to go raise capital. How did you get people to buy into this could really be our framework to invest in a company when it's never really been the framework before? Yeah, you know, I was speaking with a, a very, very close, very close friend and brother before this call, and he reminded me of something. His name is Garrett Unklebach. And he said that we all have a choice. Um, and here's where I think rubber meets the road in a lot of ways. I had to get on the phone over a year with 1,137 potential investor prospects to close about 80. Mm. I had a choice. I was moving up against an environment that was going into a global meltdown for COVID. And everyone was telling me with serious financial backgrounds, of, now this is someone I've never invested before Broom. I had never invested a dollar. I had never taken a finance class. I dropped out of accounting and statistics my freshman year, and I wanted nothing to do with anything to do. And if you were to ask any one of my friends about finance and Joe Musselman, they would have said <laughs> I would never be in finance right, ever. LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, I hope folks at LinkedIn will eventually hear this. I took one of your assessments. And it said I had a 0% chance to get into venture capital, zero. <laughs> so again, uh, it, it, it was fueling for me to not make it about the capital, but make it about the venture to go on a daring journey. Like that's what venture means, right? Yeah. So that's, I, I wanna go on a daring journey. And it's funny, um, 
when Garrett talked about having a choice, I absolutely could have and should have listened to all the people who gave me the opinion. Uh, don't raise now. Wait for markets to calm and cool. And, you know, um, people are going to be slow on investing and, you know, not the best time to go. And I just I couldn't get over the itch. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't get over the idea. And don't get me wrong, like financially, I was struggling. Um, so for people listening and thought that I was in some sort of um, financial position to just take a year and go on a list, I was not. I had a brand new baby. I had a, I, I had a wife that believed in me and believed in the idea of what I was going after. Not the what, but the idea. And... I've proved it once before. I should be able to do it again. Uh, and we talked about it and she, you know, kind of allowed me to do it um, for the family. So that year was risky. There was a ton of risk. The yeah. markets were not favorable. Everyone who has finance experience that I admire was telling me do not raise. But then now I'm talking about raising fund two and not talking about raising fund one. So I'm very glad that I went out, closed investors, started a a fund, and now we have about just close to 50 million under management in less than um, in less than eight months of investing, right? Less than eight months from when the fund has closed. We closed the fund in in March of 2021. It's amazing. So, so yeah. how how are you now looking at investments through that lens? What is you know? I think most people know kind of how venture capitalists will look at a typical investment, or or generally. How are you looking at things differently through the lens of TLC? And how have you decided sure. to pick the companies that are in your portfolio? Sure. So the second half of those interviews were with um, Forbes Midas Touch investors. They were with some of the most remarkable people in the world uh, from the investor standpoint. And they all told me a version of the same thing, especially at uh, the seed, meaning the earliest stage you can invest in a company is friends and family, angel, and then there's like a seed round. but a lot of the times it just goes right to C, right to A and so on. Um, and for folks listening who maybe don't have a background in any of this, it's, it's those are different tranches of investment that most startups uh, go after traditionally. There's a C, A, B, C rounds of funding, all leading up to a potential major um, event, merger, acquisition, IPO, et cetera. Um, so we focus early. And what I heard from folks who invest at the seed stage they were telling me that it all has to do with, well, we look for great teams, we look for great leaders, and we look for people who talk about culture in a certain way because we've learned that we can't ignore this as a factor when kind of auditing companies, we have to pay attention to it. Um, and so I, I look, I took that very literally uh, once I translated in mind, M-I-N-E-D, mind this information from the top investor class in the world. And I said, how do we become different? If other investors are also looking at this as what they look at as a success, how do we become different? How, how does this really inform our thesis? Well, when I would ask deeper questions about teams, leadership culture, well, how do you know the team is this? And they would talk about some attributes. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Rich Devini, wrote a wonderful book called The Attributes. And it breaks down all these different traits that live within all of us. Um, and there's a, a free you know, assessment that everyone should take. And it kind of breaks down your assessments or your attributes and where you fall. But the moment a founder goes from a founder to one to founder plus, you name the number, you are now a team. 
and Rich talks about teams, uh, his definition is fairly straightforward. Uh, a team is when you are, you know, two or more people headed towards a common goal or objective, right? And then you become a team. When you when you become a team, that's when investors will now look at you and, and audit the team. It's very it has very little to do with you know traction, revenue, your financials at the seed stage. You know it's it's all up for grabs. It really is. It's about yeah. the people that are behind all of those things that are going to make it successful, right? Yes, there's indicators. There's how the company's valued. There's all this stuff. But in order for us to truly be different, we had to incorporate a specific lens and the lens is TLC. Uh, and so I have this rubric that I created as a result of that year long process of interviewing. And we, we do diligence uh, sometimes uh, backwards, which is what makes us different. We have a TLC call after um, we've reviewed the tech. And then I have two remarkable co-founders uh, who are very, very technical and brilliant. Uh, so they, they review technology, they, their top picks get sent to the top. And then I have a call that's focused on TLC. And, and look, if you're a founder, you can listen to everything I said uh, and, and you can try to um, manipulate responses. Uh, it, it won't matter, I'll know. Like you just know, I'll get to questions that will take you off guard. They're never the same. They're all variations of the same theme uh, which goes across a, a eight major themes in these conversations, uh, vision, mission, values, principles, ethos, teams, leadership, culture. And I, I go in that order, but I never actually ask you about vision. I never ask you about mission. It's I ask you everything about those things in order to get to the thing uh, that I need to know. So it's it's been a remarkable experience. I'm learning every single day. And I think when Fund One um, results uh, come out in the next couple of uh, years. We're already seeing that our thesis is working. Um, yeah. We're seeing unbelievable potential. Our, the markups on our companies are so strong um, and we're so proud of them because none of this has anything to do with us. I just want to be clear. You know, whenever venture, whenever VCs talk about their returns, um, it's not about, it's, their, it's not their returns, right? It's the returns their entrepreneurs have made and earned on their yeah. behalf. And you happen to be there to empower the entrepreneur at the right time to be, and hopefully a great partner along the way. But I don't own any of this success. It's it's 100% uh, as a result of our founders and what they're doing on the ground. And I'm super proud to be a part of these companies in a very small way. I, I love to talk about the, the founders that you mentioned. I mean, you've seen the top performers in SEALs. Now you're seeing the top performers in entrepreneurs what makes these people top performers? Yeah, um, so top performers certainly have a few things in common. Um, one thing I've noticed that a lot of these top performers have in common is common sense and the way they view the world. And it's natural for them to say, yeah, I have to talk to customers, like, of course. I have to get, uh, I have to go down to the bullpen often and you know, make sure I know what my people are thinking and how they're feeling. Um, their intuition is, although it, it, I describe it as common sense, it's actually quite uncommon, as we all know. Yeah, it's funny how when people, you, you know, again, I, I use politics a lot as an example because our country has a, a cultural constitution. Like whenever we don't feel, we just celebrated Martin Luther King Day not too long ago, and uh, who was a huge icon for me growing up and 
learning from him and and just studying the the civil rights movement in general. Um, when I look at uh, when I look at folks who speak, act, and feel a certain way, uh, it's very obvious to me um, where they're coming from, and it's um, it's very comparable to that uh, to that type of exchange, I guess you could say, of of the dreamer and then the executor. So, um, anyways, I hope that answered part of your question, I, and and maybe ask it again, and I might be able to give you a little more <laughs> well, insight. I think it's hard, right? I think it's it's you know, some people, I think a lot of people have big dreams and yet there's such a smaller percentage of people who are able to actually yes, execute yes. on those. So right? sorry, so like, I, I lost is... track of my thought because <laughs> That's my, okay. my, well, my no. son ran across my, my door and I was taken to see, to make sure that somebody was following him. Um, <laughs> so anyways, I heard, when, I heard when the sound. Me, yeah. When you asked me about our, our founders and, and kind of what they have in common to all these other high performing communities. The first thing for sure is is common sense, uh, yeah. but there's also this there's there's like a fierce curiosity, man, that you can barely describe when you feel it. I mean, the questions they ask are so direct and so precise. There's a there's a certainty and a confidence that you wonder where that comes from. When you're an when you're an investor, and I'll use one of my um, truly one of the greatest founders I've ever had the privilege of working with. His name is Pranar Komani of a company called Tithe. Uh, Tithe.co is the website, and I work with this company intimately to to form their vision, mission, value set to trickle that down into what what are people doing on Monday at 8 a.m. Right, like that's tough for any company to do. We have this big vision, we have this excellent mission. We've got a great value set. How do we layer that into objectives, key results, to do subtasks, to the minutia of what we have to do to make sure it's all aligned? Um, Kradar, we were in very early with, and we're super proud of the progress of the company. Fierce curiosity. He is an immigrant to this country. He has a certain respect for the business creation process. Uh, he has a respect for competition, and he's managed to find ways to collaborate where otherwise people would think it was competitive. Mm. That is really hard to teach, but it's easy to recognize. And at least according to the rubric that I follow religiously, it came out through conversation and off-the-cuff responses, um, and it now it proves on the bottom line. You know, to go from you know, a, a million to 25 plus million, you know, ARR in like a very, 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 very short amount of time. Um, incredible, right? And it shows in the bottom line. It's so interesting that curiosity, you, mm. you picked curiosity for being a top performer. And is that part of what you're trying to see in the culture? Or it's like, is this a culture of curiosity yes. across the, across the firm? Hard yes, because think about it. For everyone that's listening to this, I need you to like go in your brain for a second and think about character traits that belong to Olympians, right? You think grit, you think resilience, you think you know beyond stick to itiveness. They make everything hard look easy, and some things for us that are easy are hard for them. 
because they've been so laser focused on one thing. Imagine being, uh, you know, there's a, that photo of Michael Phelps with like 6,000 gold medals around his neck, right? Um, he makes it look easy because he's been doing it since he could be in a pool. And, you know, when you, that's why I love watching the Olympics. It's, it's like you're watching the fruits of labor come into fruition for the whole world to see. Um, and I think when you find a founder at the right moment, who's found the right moment in time and the right idea has found them at the right moment in time and the right founder, you, it does generate a feeling. And, and Bill Maris, who's an investor, um, uh, would be considered one of the greatest investors, uh, who is the founder of Google Ventures uh, and now has something called Section 32. He said something to me one time that I'll never forget. He's like, when I'm sitting in front of a founder and I feel like, if he or she can do what they just said, it would be magic. Straight magic, magic, magical, you name it. And he's like, that feeling is what then sparks this curiosity match, like lights it in my head. Uh, I have to learn more. I dig in, I ask more questions. Like the last thing you want from an investor is no questions. Investor goes, no, I, I'm pretty good. I've, I've got no questions. Um, it didn't go well, right? Or they're just not interested. Um, that's the other thing too, is they, they joke founders often that like investors are the dark side. Like it, it I, I hope I don't, I hope I never come off like that. Um, but I do know that I joined to be a VC for a very simple thing, very simple reason. It's the purity of VC. It's that I'm, I'm, I'm here to fuel great founders trying to bring great things into the world. Um, uh, and I hope to always be there for them in the ways that I'm, you know, you know, talking about so often and with so many different people, because it does come down to the soft skills, Matt, for sure. The soft skills are the hard skills 100% of the time. And, and Joe, I know you're, you're a huge believer in, in mastering your craft and whatever you're doing. How, how are you trying to master your, your craft? What does that look like for you? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, what's, what's, probably, what, what's hard is you, you kind of have to sometimes step back, right? And take time away from your, your most, you know, your fires, right? To oh, intentionally. Yeah. Yeah, intentionally. And this goes back to managing your time. Um, how often do you self-assess yourself with those who care most about you. So at the end of every quarter, there's a week that is completely wiped clean on my calendar. And that whole week is to review me, my performance with those closest to me and begin asking very direct questions to a subset of, of people that, that are around me most. Um, and I add comments, feedback, reviews, uh, both review formally and informally to a document that I've been building now since 2015, 16. Wow. Uh, it's called the U document. It just is called U. And it's I've a huge taken a performance every report on you. That? It's a huge performance report on you, basically. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And it talks about, I eventually want to publish it when it gets um, publish it, meaning I'm just going to throw it on my LinkedIn profile as like a post. <laughs> Uh, because it, it shows all my weaknesses 
It shows all my peaks, all my valleys. It shows what I'm great at, what I'm not so great at. Uh, and I've taken everything from these assessments that resonates with me and resonates with the feedback I'm getting in real time. And I put it on one single document. Um, you know, there's like this crazy story that I heard uh, as a teenager that has stuck with me for a long time about, um, about Michelangelo. And he had help and support with like, you know, people surrounding him. And this goes back to, you know, uh, one of his greatest pieces of art that he has ever he has ever made. And he made a comment that, you know, it's in there, right? It's in this piece of stone, like what I hope to create. Um, but at the same time, um, I had to look at it for a really long time to see it. Mm-hmm. And so the people that he had supporting him on this, I'll never forget it, how they were taking months and months and months and months to sit there. And he had mirrors pointing at the piece of stone to look at the light in different ways and nothing was done for months except he was sitting there and just looking at it looking at it looking at it and then finally he just started chipping away and then the next thing you know there it was right months later um so i think of ourselves in that way that you know we continue to look at ourselves and we need others to tell us about ourselves those that know those that we know trust and love have to be part of chipping away at us and know that they're coming. Find the people that can give you, we have an investor like this. I've become very close with one of our investors uh, as an LP. And he has this uncanny ability to give feedback in such a way. And mind you, I've known this man, you know, our first call was January, maybe the summer of 2020 leading into January of 2021. So new relationship. But he has this unique ability to give me feedback about me in a way that doesn't feel like a negative critique. It just feels like a critique that's coming from a great place. And I want to lean in and listen by the way that he's explaining it. And he jokes, he kind of fumbles around. If he's listening, he'll laugh because he'll know what I mean, where he's, <laughs> he's treading so lightly, but at, at the same time being so direct. But yet yeah. it comes off as very light. You want to surround yourself with those types of people. And he's never been not wrong, right? It's, it's just a, an optic that he has that I don't have on me. And I can, he always says, you know, you can, this is, you can do whatever you want with this and, you know, tell me to go F myself and whatever. Uh, but, you know, th- this is what I'm seeing and, and I just wanted to share it with you because I care about you. You know, you, you can't challenge people directly until they, until you realize how much they care about you personally and professionally. It, it doesn't work the opposite, like it doesn't work in any other way. Um, which is why my number one personal value is love hard. It's, it's much yeah. different than tough love, which starts off with tough. Um, it's different than hardly love. It's just love hard. Um, I started at 10 and, and go from there. Uh, but anyways, to say, talk to your point of self-assessing, that's a big deal. Self-accounting and how do I improve? Uh, it's constant. It's infinite. It will never stop. And the more I learn about me, the less confidence I gain in basically every other aspect of my life. So um, meaning we're so flawed that if you're not trying to be a constant in, in a, inside a constant state of improvement, you're lying to yourself. So, and one last thing too, EQ is, EQ is different than IQ, right? We can change EQ. We can't change IQ. We're stuck with it, right? 
but we can change EQ and that's how the world perceives us. So why wouldn't you want to get better at that? And how do you, how are you getting better at it? Like what's, do you do things specifically or are you, is it just through these conversations? Like how, how do you intentionally yes. get better at it? So you have to trick yourself to get better at things. And um, the way I look at it is in the, at the end of every year from the 25th, from the 26th to the 1st, uh, I tried for a long time to try to get people like in my 20s, early 20s, to get people motivated to do work during that time. It, that was selfish of me. Like the whole world is actually taking a pretty solid pause from yeah. the 26th to the 1st. So I finally joined, uh, I finally joined that movement. And around like 2017, 16, I started to choose things that I wanted to see a 1% improvement based on direct feedback, right? Now, the 1% is important. Um, you know, you read these different books like Atomic Habits and, Habits and you know, The Perfect Day, like all these, these different types of books that break down kind of human psychology and biology. Um, it's not the fact, the percentage isn't what we think about. It's the awareness of the thing. And if I say a 1% improvement, statistically, I'm probably going to make a 10 to 15% improvement just by focusing on it. But 1% is not intimidating. So that's why I like to use 1%. And every single quarter at the end of the year, I pick out the four to six things that I'm trying to improve on. And then at the end of every quarter, I take that week to self-account and self-assess on, and it has to come from other people. It can't come from me. I can't sit there and say, I got better at feedback this quarter, or I managed my time with my wife better this quarter, or I managed me being a dad to the level that I thought was to the, my level of gold standard with Jack and my now daughter, Sophia, uh, to my standard. Like you outline these things personally and professionally, and then you have to ask the people that your actions will directly impact. It's kind of like you're, you can't even call yourself a leader until others call you a leader. Yeah. It's not up to you. Right. So that's how I think about self improvement and, uh, it can't come from you. Those that are closest to you have to recognize that improvement's been made. That's fascinating. The, um, the, the thing I, I want to make sure we definitely hit on because I think in any entrepreneur's life and I mean, anyone's life, you face something that is such a massive setback and you know, you talked about wondering what's next and that, that can be a huge part of it. But what you faced in, in getting injured and realizing your dream of becoming a Navy SEAL, you know, had ended, you know, people face entrepreneurs face that right. in, in different ways, how do you overcome yes. such a massive setback? And I, yeah. I know roughly, you know, how you overcame yours. Right. But how, you see these entrepreneurs, you're coaching them. How do you overcome something that feels like, it feels like death at that time? Yeah, yes. Great, again, great question, Matt. You have a gift for, for this, of asking great questions. Um, Thank you. So there's another reason why I wanted to work with founders that I didn't talk about. Uh, <clears throat> I signed on a dotted line. It was very real, very tangible. I could see it. There was a contract to it. And it was to give my life uh, for something much bigger than myself. Service members do this all the time, right? Millions and millions and millions of Americans 
3% of this entire country's population signs on a dotted line to go and serve in uniform. Therefore, it's at the needs of the military, and that includes going to war, uh, and that includes losing life. Um, so there's only one other community in my transition that I knew I could work with who also does that, but in a metaphorical way, and I'm not comparing founders directly to those that have lost their life. Um, I just want to be clear on that. But there's one community that I know that does sign on a metaphorical dotted line their name to give their life for something that hopefully will become much bigger than any one person. And not all founders are like that, right? They're very unique in the way they think, act, feel, and communicate. That's the purpose of the rubric. That's the purpose of TLC. That's the reason why I, I wanted to go in and work with founders because the right ones are so obsessed. You never have to, like how many people listening? I almost went into facilitation mode. How many people listening by a show of hands? Um, so uh, how many people listening though? We can stick with that. Uh, look to your left and look to your right at work. And I know the answer, so don't lie to me. Like statistically, I know the answer. Gallup published the answer. Barron's studied the answer. I know the answer to this question. How many times do you look to your left and look to your right at work and have to wonder how dedicated your teammates are to what you're working on? Or how many people around you are as dedicated as you at the work that you're doing? Well, 83% were reported to be disengaged at work. So there's a massive transition of talent happening that this generation coming into the workforce is now measuring uh, themselves that we care about purpose over profit for the first time in history. Uh, so organizations better pick up their game in how they discuss and talk about the vision, mission, value set of their organization because they'll lose out on the greatest and most brilliant to date uh, talent pool uh, the world's ever seen. But when you ask me that question, when you get over failure, a good way to think about it is you don't have to get over something that you signed up for. It's the wrong way to look at it. I got to get over this failure. You signed up for it. Yeah. And, and I signed up for service. And if what, my, what I had hoped to have happened failed, I signed up for it. That's what I signed up for. I got injured. I get it. How can I continue emulating the vision, mission, purpose of this community into the next great adventure of my own life? Well, that was honor.org. And, and look what happened. It's a national organization. Uh, nearly 1,500 families are now in jobs as a result of that mission. I can at least hang my head up high and say that although I didn't serve in uniform, I served those in uniform and I served those in uniform at scale, probably in a greater way that I could have ever done uh, as one of their teammates or a trigger puller out in the field for them. It's just different. I, I wouldn't have been able to make that same type of impact at a very, uh, at a very stressful and vulnerable time in their life, right? Yeah. And so with founders, it's, it's the same thing when failure happens. This is a very real time example. One of our founders uh, who I've been back and forth with on calls and emails and slacks and was very engaged in this process um, of l basically letting one of the employees go. Um, and I said something to 
this founder uh, that gave pause, great pause, where once the scenario was explained, I kind of just paused and sat back and said, well, this is what you signed up for, right? And the whole attitude changed because it was a reminder that, yep, that's exact. you're exactly right. This is what I signed up for. I said, all right, well, let's talk about how we hope to grow. Let's make sure we handle this well, because how people bring people into an organization and how people let people go from an organization tells me everything about what's in between. It tells me everything about the culture that I need to know on how you bring people on and how you let people go. And so we have to be very careful with the situation because it's very early in the company. I want you to have a wildly positive reputation out in the engineering world of, of talent. And it wasn't a culture fit. And that's, and they both agreed, right? They both agreed it wasn't a, a culture fit. But to be able to point to something and say, it, it's not a culture fit for these reasons. I mean, hell, we do it in our country all the time. Uh, even Martin Luther King said, I'm just trying to live up to the words on paper, right? To what we said on paper. That's it. That's enough to motivate a mass movement of millions of people to just say, I'm just trying to live up to the words that we said on paper. Right. Mm -hmm. Pointing back to our founding documents, because we had those founding documents. We know what we believe as a country. And when we fall short, we call it into question and we call it out and movements form around it. It's powerful. Our nation, we forget our nation. We call them the founding fathers like they're founders. Or, or yeah. They're literally founders. So who emulates that type of drive and determination where they left European, they left Europe to come here knowing that their families would be killed and hung? Like, are you ready to burn that type of boat to start a company? I, I spend more time trying to scare people out of entrepreneurship because it's the hardest job in the world. It's romanticized far too much yeah. by far too many. It's a nearly impossible job statistically. And the problem is the media glorifies these success stories, which are good and bad, meaning it's good because it really gets great stories of impact out into the world and motivates a generation to want to become that, right? Like what would happen if Michael Jordan never played basketball? How many people would be uninspired? I mean, for Christ's sake, I have a pair of his shoes on my top shelf. He's <laughs> like, right. he's inspired me in ways that are outside just, of basketball, outside of that. Correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. And I, and I, I and I got to tell way. you, man, I, I was walking through the um, African-American museum in DC. And I could not find an area of my life that was not inspired by the African-American community. Not mm -hmm. a single one from art to music to sports. Uh, it's the cross-culturalness of entrepreneurship and the yeah. diversity that we continue to strive for, both investing and, in, as, an, and as in entrepreneurs for the different types of ideas um, that make this space so great. Yeah. And it's quite exciting. Oh, that's a great way to phrase it, though. And I think that's true of a lot of things in your life is you signed up for this. Being a dad, a friend, you signed up for it. Right. You name it. You signed up for it. You signed up for it, right? So stop Get complaining. Over <laughs> and, and for all those who complain about their spouses, just realize, uh, please don't ever do that with me. Um, you signed up for it. Like, yeah, I you had a whole ceremony I, about it, right? Right. It was a whole thing. Like, it was a whole thing <laughs> you guys did in front of a whole bunch of people. Like, yeah, what's well, changed? Uh, Nothing. That's, of course, I want to lend a, an ear and, and talk through totally. tough problems. Um, but degrading your significant other, it also reflects on your decision-making um, and your behavior Absolutely. as well.
So well, you sign up for it. As as we wrap this up, which has just been an awesome interview with you, Joe, what would your parting advice, if you could give any, to others that are trying to make it happen, you know, at the highest level and whatever their field is, right? What would that be? Yeah. So um, I can give an opinion. I hate giving advice. It really puts me on this, puts me on this, <laughs> right? Like, like I'm coming from a place of like, I know what I'm talking about. So I can give an opinion for sure. Uh, for those that are out there that are, and just to string all the themes from this conversation together, uh, those that are out there trying to make something happen. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're trying to make your marriage happen. I don't care if you're trying to make a business happen. If you're trying to make anything happen, it's funny how all of it is universal on what it takes to actually make it happen, right? You have a choice. Uh, and it's something that my, you know, that I, I've developed this mindset where you have to be objective and honest with yourself that before you give something up, you have to ask yourself a very real question that only you can answer. No one else can answer it. Only you can answer it, which is, have you done all that you can? That's a very serious question, whether it's with a friendship, whether it's with your marriage, whether it's with your business, can you honestly look at yourself in the mirror? And it's brought me to tears several times when I've asked myself that question across all of those topics. Like, have you really done all that you can, Joe Musselman? Like, no, I haven't. There have been times where I said, yes, I have. And then I moved away from the friendship. I moved away from an opportunity. I have, you know, that's the question you have to ask yourself. Uh, and so I would, I would say, ask yourself that question. And if the answer is no, you got to get back to work. And sometimes the work on the other side of the no of that question is enough for you to just want to quit. Well, then now, as you know, I talked about earlier, what Garrett Unklebox said, you have a choice. That choice is up to you. If you are looking forward and seeing how hard the road ahead is, again, you need to not think about it as quitting. You need to think about it as product person fit, market person fit, um, opportunity person fit. Like we don't talk enough about that, of the founder product market fit. Like, Sometimes there are people starting businesses that, that maybe they, they shouldn't be starting because they themselves are not necessarily a fit. Um, but I, you do need to answer that question. And I'm talking about with raw, with a, a rawness and vigor uh, and pursuit for truth. Uh, that's one yeah. of the values of the fund is, is truth. It's, you can't yeah. be afraid of that. And, and asking probably the people around you who'd be candid enough to tell you the same, right? And not just tell you what you want to hear. That's right. Have I done all that I can? And only they, only you can answer that question. They can inform the answer because they might tell you, no, we haven't, you know, you might walk out to your team in the bullpen and say, have I done all that I can to be yeah. the best founder and CEO of this company? And they're all like, no, of course not. Get back <laughs> in there, man. Like, let's get back to work. We're talking crazy. All right. There's yeah, your yeah. That's right. Office. Yeah. Correct. That's right. <laughs> so uh, I hope that's a helpful piece of a, I hope that's Very a helpful. Helpful, helpful opinion 
Um, but it does take some very serious truth telling and serum to yourself uh, to sit back and say, have I done all that I can when you hit a crossroads? No, that's awesome. What a great way to, to end this, this episode, Joe. Really appreciate you. Your, your kind words, your, your thought of service, everything, what you're doing for, with Broom Ventures and supporting entrepreneurs and you name every person you come across with is impressive. So thank you for your time Thanks, today. Man.